Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. It's time for another hospital Q&A as I slowly recover from my deep infection, the wound. Um, if I haven't mentioned it already, what's going on is essentially they got to let the inner flesh heal. And then in about a month or so, they'll perform a skin graft operation and put a patch over the wound. But right now, the inner flesh has to heal well enough to accept the skin graft. And uh, hopefully all that will go well. And, uh, you know, I'll be back on my feet fully. I'm uh, doing physical therapy, walking with a walker, naked. No, uh, but I'm uh, walking down the hall and I'm starting to handle uh, stairs and everything's going in the right direction. Everyone is very positive when they see how the wound is healing. Uh, how'd I get it? I have no idea. They don't know how I got it. I've spoken to other people who've had similar wounds, both friends and family. They didn't know how they got theirs either. It sort of happens. It's diabetes related and I'm taking care of things as I should, eating right, learning the proper uh, procedures moving forward. Uh, it's like I said, it's going to take a year. And unfortunately, that means it's probably unlikely that I'll be at any conventions this year. So I won't get to see you unless I run into you on the streets of Chicago. Um, but have fun this year, convention-wise. I'm so bummed. Got really lovely invitations from Salt Lake City. And I'm sure I was going to go to New York again. And uh, my buddies at Terrificon, Mitch Halleck and, and company, uh, very, very excited about the lineup that they're putting together at Terrificon. I'm hoping specifically in the case of Terrificon that I will still do pre-con interviews the way I did with Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway and the like before the show to help promote it and help uh, Mitch sell some tickets. At least that's my plan. And I think Mitch might be agreeable to that. Um, but I know that they got some great white whales that are coming to Terrificon to Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Pretty neat stuff. But uh, for today, once again, we're going to do another uh, Q&A session with uh, listeners. I've been uh, going on social media on Facebook and Twitter. If you don't know, my Twitter handle is at uh, John Balloon. And my Facebook uh, handle, of course, is just under my name, John Suntress. That's where I've been soliciting questions. And uh, we got a lot of good stuff. So I can't wait to get to it. Today's Word Balloon brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. A lot of people have reached out uh, during this period knowing that I'm not doing radio right now and have really stepped up and subscribed to Word Balloon either through PayPal or through Patreon. And, you know, Patreon is the monthly service that uh, people use uh, to subscribe. Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. But if you want to help the cause out, you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. And that'll take you directly to our page, or you can click on the Patreon ad at wordballoon.com. But thank you very much for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics, who are shaking things up in 2019. It's a new year. Do yourself a favor and check out some new books from Aftershock Comics. They've got tremendous creators that all are writing fantastic books and drawing fantastic books. Name creators like Adam Glass, who you know from his Teen Titans work, and Marguerite Bennett from DC Bombshells, uh, and uh, Garth Ennis and all of his amazing work from The Boys to his war stories. Cullen Bunn, who's doing great work and has in the past at DC and Marvel. Buddies of mine like Brian Azzarello. Well, they've all come to Aftershock and created new concepts, new ideas, ongoing series, also some graphic novels as well. And, uh, you know, there's no 75 years of continuity to burden them. If they want to kill off a character, they'll do it. Anything goes in an Aftershock comic. And um, plus, it's run by Joe Pruitt and Mike Martz, two of the best comic book men I've known. 
uh, both by reputation and face-to-face. I met Joe a few times at shows. He was part of uh, Desperado Comics and um, also Caliber back in the day. And a lot of great people got their start under the tutelage of uh, Joe Pruitt. Friends of ours like uh, Mike Perkins and uh, Caliber guys like Dave Mack and uh, Brian uh, Brian Bendis and Mike Oming. Brian Oming, I almost called him. Well, it's a combination of Bendis and Oming. Uh, Don Kramer was then um, at Caliber back in the day under Joe Pruitt. Um, uh, Tim, uh, my buddy, Tim Bradstreet, an old college buddy of mine, he got his start and some of his early stuff was uh, at uh, at Caliber. Well, now Pruitt is bringing that same savvy to Aftershock Comics. And Mike Martz, good Lord, he ran the X-Men uh, and was the X-Men editor at Marvel, overseeing the whole shot, the senior X-Men editor. And, of course, he was the Batman editor. So he is plugged into some great... Uh, creators as well. My buddy Tim Seeley is going to be doing an Aftershock book in 2019. Phil Hester is going to be doing a great book in, of, at Aftershock in 2019. Steve Orlando's got something new cooking there. We're going to be talking to all of them and more in the days and weeks ahead. And in fact, I am getting uh, my laptop back. So I will I also be able to start bringing you uh, not only uh, new interviews from Word Balloon, but also uh, looking back at uh, five uh, interviews that I did in the last days of 2018 before I got sick, and I can present those as well to you. And it's all coming soon. But uh, in the meantime, go over to uh, Aftershock's website. You will find preview pages, full story descriptions, and the diamond codes on how to order some of their great product. And it's uh, through your local comic shop. It's all at AftershockComics.com. All right, without further ado, let's get into uh, some of our questions here uh, from the listeners of Word Balloon. My buddy Noah Cutler, the calculator, and a good friend of uh, Brad Meltzer's, um, he wanted to uh, ask, uh, DC's Who's Who puts the hero Wildcat at 171 pounds. If I'm right, that makes him a light heavyweight. You are right. So who wins against this matchup? Ted Grant Wildcat versus Jack Dempsey. Well, first of all, that's an excellent matchup because even though Dempsey was technically a heavyweight, his average weight was around 185 pounds. This is before the cruiserweight division existed. And, um, you know, it's it's weird. Now, who's, who says the Wildcat was 171? But uh, DC, and especially during the Golden Age, had Ted Grant as a, a former heavyweight champion of the world. And, in fact, even a current heavyweight champion, I believe, in his uh, – Daytime uh, civilian identity is Ted Grant. Um, so that's interesting. I got to tell you, as much as I love Jack Dempsey, Jack Dempsey was an amazing fighter. There's great film of him, footage of him being an explosive guy, kind of like Mike Tyson, punched in combinations, crowded the ring. But Dempsey represents that very short window of time between what became the modern 20th century era and the bare, and and the post bare knuckle era, because his prime really was uh, the 1910s. So in that era, um, the rules were a little different. For instance, um, you could hit a guy while he was down and kind of keep him down, uh, which sounds crazy today to imagine that you'd be disqualified today. And in fact, um, before the second. Dempsey Tunney fight in 1927, they decided to implement the um, neutral corner rule that after you knock somebody down, you have to go to a neutral corner. Otherwise, Dempsey was a classic example of a fighter who would loom over his opponent and hit him as he was on his way back up. Again, it wasn't dirty back then, so it was acceptable. 
And again, I mean, you know, this was uh, Jess Willard when he fought uh, Dempsey in the teen, in the late teens. Jess Willard's the guy who beat Jack Johnson. Um, so Dempsey was really of that era. And, uh, you know, by the by the mid uh, 20s, he had also like taken several years of his prime off to uh, tour vaudeville. He got married to an actress and stuff. So I would think that Ted Grant's dedication coming from a slightly more modern era, the name of Wildcat obviously suggests that Ted uh, as a boxer had good movement. Um, I think Dempsey would have trouble with Ted Grant. And I like seeing uh, Ted Grant actually winning a decision against Dempsey or possibly even knocking Dempsey out. It is possible. I mean, Gene Tunney was a slightly smaller man as far as weight. But it was long and lanky and was able to knock Dempsey down a couple times in their fights. Uh, so as great as Jack Dempsey was, and he was great in his era, I have a feeling Ted Grant would do a better job. Noah followed up with a comment and said, I like Ted Grant as a boxer, just like I like Jefferson Pierce as a gold medal decathlon athlete. The sports professional has all sorts of different character elements to write to. I completely agree. And I was also very fascinated by the idea that, um, you know, Black Lightning was a former Olympic uh, decathlete. Pretty neat stuff. Nikolai asks, are you a news radio fan? Constable Odo is his uh, Twitter handle. I am a news radio fan. I'm especially an early news radio fan. It, I mean, everyone was shocked and sad when Phil Hartman passed away. But that's a great cast. I mean, if you really break it down. And, man, I, the more you learn about Andy Dick as a person, you kind of hate him. So I'll just leave it at that as far as my feelings for Andy Dick. I thought he was very good on the show. Uh, I love Jimmy James, the character actor I'm a, whose name right now is escaping me. Stephen Root. Uh, fantastic and Brother Where Out Thou. Everything. I mean, my God, he played a great Klingon in the uh, Spock two-parter on Next Generation. The guy was just great. Fantastic. Um, so uh, I uh, I was a, I was a big uh, religion, or a news radio fan. Also, uh, God, Maura Tierney and Dave Foley were very cute together. And Dave Foley, I've loved him since Kids in the Hall. And uh, Candy Alexander was excellent. Joe Rogan. It's funny. I used to call Joe Rogan the 90s version of Tony Danza. Boy, was I wrong. And no disrespect to Tony Danza either. But, man, Joe Rogan, uh, a much more three-dimensional person than I ever gave him credit for. And especially, he goes from news radio to fear factor. I'm like, oh, God, you roll your eyes at that, although I know he made serious bank. But then, you know, all the time he was a jujitsu guy and became a UFC commentator. And uh, I love his podcast. His podcast, when he has a guest on that I find interesting, he's amazing. And he's got a great innate sense of curiosity and can pretty much talk about any subject, even ones he's unfamiliar with because, again, of that curiosity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a really uh, really big Joe Rogan fan. So, yeah, unfortunately, when, uh, when, when Phil Hartman died – uh, and, I, and, man, I give John Lovitz a lot of credit as one of Phil's closest friends to try and step in and keep things going. It just wasn't the same. Other shows have been a managed to, to survive after a major character is either written off or the actor literally dies. Nicholas Colasanto as coach on Cheers. Who knows where you know it could have gone. And thank God they had somebody come in like Woody Harrelson and bring in a totally different vibe and keep the show going. But that's not always a definite. And there are a lot of shows – that when uh, a character leaves or, and they try, it's just not the same. Diane Ladd, the excellent actress, she was in the original movie Alice Doesn't uh, Live Here Anymore. And then they made the TV show Alice. And Polly Bergen was Flo 
on the on the show, kind of the wisecracking, uh, slightly slutty waitress. And they spun her off on her own series. And Diane Ladd, who basically played the Flo character in the movie, came on as Belle to take over. My rights here, if you can hear the ambulance in the background. Um, you know, so Diane Ladd takes over, and you think, well, that's a no-brainer. She was great in the in the t- in the movie. She'll be great on the TV show. No, not really. Not the same. So you never know. Mark Buxton, favorite Legion story. I'm assuming you mean the Legion of Superheroes, who I've loved since I was a kid and enjoyed uh, those great stories from the Silver Age all the way to the modern era. Um, well, I'd say the Five Years Later saga that was uh, part of that period post-Watchmen and Dark Knight where things got really dark for the Legion and Cosmic Boy had lost his powers. A lot of Legionnaires had turned bad uh, and had left. The Legion was disbanded and uh, Cosmic Boy was slowly trying to bring everybody back, back together. But that's that's absolutely probably my favorite of all the sagas. The Great Darkness saga was a great pre-crisis story that Superman or Superboy and Supergirl were even part of. And just the idea of uh, dark dark side suddenly coming back uh, in the 30th uh, century as he did. Um, Paul Levitt's a great Legion writer. Keith Giffen, a great Legion writer and artist. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Legion of Superheroes fan. And um, yeah, so there's just a couple of the great stories that I think they did for the Legion of Superheroes. Christopher DeCarbo. Hey, John. What are your thoughts on George Perez retiring from comics due to his health? Do you have any stories you could share about him and his legacy as a creator? Well, obviously, huge George Perez fan. Uh, the White Tiger is the first character of his that I was aware of, and it was back in the Marvel black and white magazine days of Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, where that was one of the sub-features, along with Shang-Chi stories and Sons of the Dragon. I, so that's the first time I was aware of George Perez's material. I confess that as much as I appreciate and respect the work that he and Marv Wolfman t- did on the Teen Titans. I wasn't a diehard Teen Titans fan. Um, like I said, my book was The Legion back then. And uh, also um, Batman and the Outsiders, more so than the X-Men and, and the Titans. But, you know, you, his place in comics history can't be denied. Uh, Jesus Crisis on Infinite Earths is a masterpiece. Um, his work as well on, didn't he do uh, JLA versus Avengers with Kurt Busiek? That's an incredible book. I only got to talk to George once, and that was a 10-minute interview uh, at uh, one of the Wizard Chicago shows, and I actually did video of, of it as well. So there's audio and, and video of it, but he couldn't have been nicer, very sweet guy. Uh, I have tremendous respect for George. And, you know, something like uh, if uh, health uh, is dictating that he has to uh, work less, um, then take care of your health. I mean, I'm, right now, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do with my situation. And George has 20 years on me, plus maybe maybe 25 years on me. But uh, God bless him, man. That's I don't I don't blame him. I'm really sorry that it's happening. I unfortunately was asked if I would be interested in moderating a panel with George and Ma, Marv on an upcoming convention. And because of my uh, health issues, I, I had to pass on that, and I greatly regret it. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge fan of George's, and I'm, I'm very, very sorry uh, to see him leave comics. But he's leaving on his own terms, and we'll, you know, we'll be well, one of those guys that'll still be going to shows. I think that's what it looked like. Um, he might be, as he said, I, and I read his uh, personal note that he might be charging a little bit more than he used to as far as sketches go. But he was always a fair price guy, and uh, hey, legend, living legend. You know, you, you earned your rest, Mr. Perez. 
Uh, take care of yourself, and God bless you, and thank you very much for your contributions uh, to comics. Scott Larson, what was the first comic you ever read, and do you still have a copy of it? I don't, but I do remember reading in the very, very end days of the 12 and 15 cent era in comics, um, a few Supermans here and there. I remember seeing the 80-page giant that had uh, the imaginary story of uh, Superman getting married. They, they silhouette the face so you don't know if it's Lana or Lois. But he has two sons. One, one has superpowers. There's Cal and there's Jor. Cal L the second and Jor L the second. And I believe Jor has the powers and has the black blue hair like Superman. And Cal has brown hair and does not have superpowers, but is really, really smart. And it's all about uh, them being Superman's sons. And uh, he takes him to Kandor where things are a little more equal and uh, Jor doesn't have his powers in the bottled city of Kandor. And they even go on a Nightwing and Flamebird adventure where they put the costumes on and they are the dynamic duo of Kandor. I love that story. And, and it was always the warmth of uh, Kurt Swan's art on Superman that I think really appealed to me as a child and nurtured me through many of my early uh, comic book years because I was a dedicated Superman reader. The first comic book I remember ever purchasing, and I don't remember the uh, number of it, but it was either a Superman or an action. And the cover was a story about Superman's other secret identity. And he was Chris Delbart, the Wolf of Wall Street. And it was just this one shot. I don't think he ever became Chris Delbart ever again. But to throw people off the Clark Kent set, he adopted this other identity. And it's a very classically Bronze Age Superman story from, I want to say, 1973. I would have been uh, eight or nine years old. I used to get a 50-cent allowance, and my dad would let me go walk down to the drugstore, and I could buy as many comic books as 50 cents would get me, or I'd save money and buy a few more. And uh, this was the 20-cent an issue era that I really started buying comics, you know, very much. So there you go, Larson. Um, Mark Leferrier. Um, my question for this round. We heard you mention you have some ideas for writing comics yourself in the future, but you haven't pulled the trigger on, on this as of yet. The book you helped write and edit uh, with the interviews uh, about Mike Oming and his art, did that push you closer to wanting to write comics or did it scratch that itch for now? Well, that was, uh, that was a project from 2017, so I guess technically it might have scratched the itch for now. But um, And by the way, check it out if you haven't seen it. There's No Plan, uh, no plan B, the art uh, of Michael Avon Oming. I did the, uh, the, art, the interview that runs through the book and very proud of that uh, uh, project. Was thrilled that Mike chose me and it really felt cool because it was Mike's art. I wrote the text. Uh, Bendis wrote the introduction and Mac wrote the afterward. So it was like, hey, look at that. All four of us are working on a book together. Isn't that cool? At least that's how I felt. I'm sure they're rolling their eyes. But it was a lot of fun for me. No, I've got a couple ideas. And actually, um, uh, some have uh, – Omar Spahi has a really great uh, podcast called The Dreamers Comic Podcast. And um, he had me on his show. And uh, I mentioned that I do have some ideas for comics. And a couple artists even uh, through email said, hey, would love to draw your book. 
check out my art. Let me let me know what you think. And uh, I have to get back to uh, those creators and thank them. Um, I'm in the very interesting, weird problem of I've got an idea. I would love a couple ideas. Some are short, you know, ten or twenty page story ideas that we can knock off pretty fast. I do have one ambitious graphic novel idea, but you know, knowing a how much cartoonists are trying to hustle and get work. I'm just not in a position to pay for someone to draw a book, and I would never saddle somebody with with you know a graphic novel. I, I you know, but uh, you might see a 20 page story from me in the next year or two that I have kicking around with, with another writer buddy of mine who's a very accomplished writer and wanted to write a comic book with me. So you might see that sooner than later, um, and then some of these other ideas. They're kind of retro ideas. They're not superhero ideas. They're more uh, crime story ideas, um, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. I want to keep it vague, but if you're an aspiring artist and uh, you might be interested in uh, in doing something, but uh, no, unfortunately, that I, I can't pay up front, sure, drop me a line, john at wordballoon.com, and uh, show me your stuff. Show me what you've got, in the words of Rick and Morty. Uh, you know, that would be terrific. Zach Goyet. Oh, excuse me. Mark also asked... When are these and the other shows that I've been doing, when are they going to hit the Word Balloon feed? This week, because um, I've been expecting to go to uh, rehab, and it hasn't quite happened yet. So I kind of set up a deadline of, okay, if I'm not you know, out of this hospital room by a certain day, I'm still going to get my uh, laptop, and I will make sure that these hospital Q&As will also make it to the regular Word Balloon feed. Um, they are on the Spreaker feed, and I keep putting up the Spreaker links. So if you want to hear it right away, that's the best way to do it. So, uh, But uh, eventually they will also be on the Blog Talk feed. And then my friends at Blog Talk are moving everything over to the Spreaker feed in general. You won't notice the difference. It won't interrupt subscriptions or anything like that. I talked about this in the last podcast. But um, it's just something that's going to take a technician about a day to accomplish. And um, my liaison at Blog Talk Radio and Spreaker – uh, she got sick and we were supposed to do it last Tuesday. She's like, I'm really sorry. I got the stomach flu. Can we do it next Tuesday? I'm like, of course, you know, I get it. So eventually it will happen. And when it does, all that stuff will be there. But for now, you know, again, if you're hearing this, you know, you can hear these on the uh, speaker feed. Zach Goyet, have you had a chance yet to read Young Justice? And if you did, what did you think of it? I'm embarrassed to say I have not had a chance yet to read Young Justice, Bendis' first new issue of Wonder Comics. I'm very excited for him. We've had long discussions off the record talking about his plans, uh, the other creators that are involved, and the satellite books like the Wonder Twins and Dial H for Hero and the like. It sounds like an amazing project. What's my overall – also, Zach asks, what's my overall review of the DC Universe app? I think it is a good app that has a lot of potential. Um, I would still like to see more content. Sooner than later. And obviously, uh, we the Young Justice cartoon is up and running now. Titans has wrapped up its first season. Swamp Thing is on its way. Doom Patrol is on its way. Stargirl is on its way. Um, they have a nice selection of 80s and 90s DC movies. They have a nice selection of DC animated movies and pretty recent stuff that uh, once it's done uh, selling through the DVD market – seems to find its way to the DC Universe app, which I think is smart. Um, and so, yeah, I like it. I, uh, I'm happy I have it. I have no plans to dump it. 
And uh, they even have cheese ball things on there, like uh, the two insipid Challenge of the Superheroes uh, specials from NBC back in the day. And uh, that was the first one. And then, of course, the Superhero Roast. Woof. Man, you want like Star Wars holiday special level bad entertainment. That's your special, sir and madam. By all means, check it out. Jeff Stein, if you could create a comic book specifically just for your taste, what characters would be in it, what writers would you want, what artists, and what would the story be? I would like a Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Marvel book. I would want somebody that really knows how to write spy stuff. Ed Brisson can do it. Certainly Bendis has done it. Jonathan Hickman has done it uh, in the past. But I think Ed, Ed for, for a fresh take, I'm sure Charles Soule would do an excellent job on it. I love what Brubaker did with Secret Avengers, something along that vein. But, but again, more Cold War and more S.H.I.E.L.D.-oriented. I'd want Mike Deodato to be the guy to draw it because I love his realistic style. It evokes memories of Paul Galassi at his best. And uh, I'm, I'm just – yeah, I love Deodato's work. I've always been a fan of his stuff. And I even liked um, – didn't, I think he drew that Chaikin story uh, about um, the 1950s version of the Avengers, not the one with from What If that had uh, 3D Man and Robot Man and or X23 or not X23, I forget the name of the robot and Jimmy Woo and all those guys, but a different 50s um, Avengers team. But yeah, I would say Deodato. Uh That's that's what I'd like, um, and it would be a Cold War story, Jeff. As far as what kind of story would it be? You have an exclusive after-con table for you and 10 comic book writers and artists. Who's at the table and why? Uh, well, I'll give, the, give you the why right away because I find them to be fun conversationalists. But all right, let's see. Just off the top of my head, Bendis, Howard Chaikin, um, Gail Simone, um, Teeny Howard, Joel Jones, Tom King, um, Chris Somney. That's seven. Uh, who else? I'm trying to think of other uh, writers and artists. Uh, well, Hickman, Jason Aaron, and um, Matt Fraction. Let's say that. Okay? And for alternates, Kelly Sudaconic should be in there somewhere. Um, Alex DeCampi would be in there because she's a very interesting writer. And that's the thing. I think they, they all have different perspectives and they're, they're all interesting people. And I, I appreciate when they come on to talk. And uh, and also, there are others that I think are great talkers, but don't necessarily uh, share the stage well. So I, I think some people, without naming names, would be happy to be there, but would dominate the conversation, and you, you wouldn't get a word in edgewise. But I could, Jesus, ten people, hell, I can give you another ten. Or, you know, Charles Soule, and um, you know, Brubaker, obviously, um, Greg Rucka, my dear friend, Greg Rucka. I can't believe he was in, in my first 10. Jan Van Meter, his lovely wife, equally talented, equally outspoken. My guy, Jeff Parker, uh, Phil Hester and Andy Parks, both great conversationalists and great artists and writers themselves. Um, yeah, man. I mean, no, it's an endless list. Bo Smith. I could do an old timers table of, uh, Denny O'Neill and, uh, Jerry Conway and Marty Pascoe and, uh, you know, Neil Adams, although Neil might be one of those guys that might dominate the conversation. But, uh, you know, so if Neil's willing to play and listen to uh, some of his peers and the people who came shortly after him, uh, that might be fun. Ramona Fraden, tons of interesting stories. Trina Robbins, tons of interesting stories. 
So yeah, I couldn't limit couldn't limit it to ten, Jeff. Mark Buxton, okay, you're in charge of creating a new DC anthology like those that appeared in the Golden Age. Which six characters are in it? One cover feature, five backups. Hmm, he said. Um, that's a good question. Let's see. Uh, I would have uh, Adam Strange be in there. Um, I don't know if he would could uh, sustain being a cover hero, but let's. If if I I guess uh, the cover uh, guy would be somebody like Barry Allen's Flash, um, Adam Strange, uh, the original Robbie Reed Dial H for Hero. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that uh, from its House of Mystery days when he shared the title with the Martian Manhunter. Um, Adam Strange Dial H for Hero, Roy Raymond TV Detective. I was always a big fan of that, and I would love to see that come back in some capacity. I think I mentioned last time. That uh, if I were ever to do uh, a DC story, it would be a Wildcat story set in the Cold War, that post-World War II era. And uh, I love the idea that Roy Raymond was this, you know, it was he was a detective, but he had his TV, uh, TV detective show. And I think that's a good kind of backdrop for him to operate and stuff. Um, I would love to see Dr. Occult brought back and I would set it in the 30s in that pre-Golden Age era that Dr. Occult seemed to excel in. Um, Lois Lane. I'm always a Lois Lane fan. She is the greatest, most underused character in the DC universe. Why isn't there a Lois Lane reporter book where she is just uncovering stories all over the DC universe because she knows everybody. She's smart. She's capable. That's why Superman married her. So uh, there you go. And if that's not six, it's close enough. <laughs> Mark Buxton, how do you handle it if one of your close comic pals writes something you don't like? I shrug and I walk away. Um, you you got to understand, guys and women, um, no one's perfect. No one's going to bat a thousand. And sure, there have been books that uh, my friends have written. Um, and I, if I don't like it, um, it doesn't come up. They usually have more than one book out there. And, um, you know, there's always plenty to talk about. So it isn't that big of an issue. Where do you see the industry in 10 years? Hold on. Let me get out my crystal balls. Yikes. And, uh, see what I see. Um, I think everything is going fine. Um, I wonder about the survival of the monthly floppy, and I mean, I don't mean that with any disparaging way. Some people are offended when I call them floppies, but you know what I mean. Um, maybe we'll we'll run into a situation where it's digital first, and then when it's time to collect it, then you can get a, a printed copy. But um, I don't know, man. I just think three ninety nine an issue is kind of testing the limits. But I felt that way about two ninety nine. I felt that way about uh, two dollars. Back in the day, you know, I, I just think comics need to be affordable. It's very funny how boxing and pay-per-view um, has made a turn to streaming and um, to keep boxing more affordable than pay-per-view. That's what the sport did. And a lot of promoters believe in that. The old system still exists. Manny Pacquiao just uh, beat Adrian Bronner on a pay-per-view fight for Showtime that cost $75 for pay-per-view. Well, I kind of uh, think... Maybe if you subscribe to Marvel Unlimited or DC Universe that you would get uh, new stuff as part of your subscription. And then if you wanted a trade, then that might be extra and stuff. But that's just my thoughts. 
You're in charge of adding new franchises to the Marvel Universe. What are you going with? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I was told there'd be no math today. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know what I wish they'd bring back is um, the Avenger, the all-women Avenger team that they had for Secret Wars. I thought that was a really smart idea. And it's, like real, again, a kind of a no-brainer of why not have an elite A-list team of all the A-list Marvel female heroes and that they team up and are, it's just the women kicking ass. I think it'd be a great idea. Of all the different jobs that go into producing a single comic book, what's the one that you say, yeah, I could do that? Um, I, I, hey, man, uh, you would have read my comics book now if I really felt that way. Uh, I have a lot of respect for all of these. That's uh, Doug uh, was SZA. And I appreciate the question, Doug, but honestly, um, I certainly can't draw. Um, I used to write articles covering boxing. Um, so I, like I said, I have some writer ideas. I guess writing would be the closest, but we all think we can write comic books. And not necessarily better comic books, but uh, just different comic books. So I suppose writer. That would be my thing. But I have tremendous respect for colorists. Uh, I got a great interview coming up with Chris Iliopoulos, who, beyond being a wonderful artist and writer himself, uh, is certainly known for his lettering and his lettering squad at Marvel. And we talk a bit about that. That's going to be one of the upcoming episodes on Word Balloon. Sean Michael. As we've seen some great maxi series from Tom King, what creator would you like to see get a great story? And who would you like to be the creative team? Um, again, I'll go back to my def- default. I love the original Nick Fury. I think he's a very interesting character. I liked what uh, Garth Ennis did in the Marvel Max series and kind of made him a little tougher and a little boozier and a little less inappro- uh, less appropriate. Um, but I would go back to classic Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff. Uh, that's that's what I'd like to see. And uh, again, I already mentioned earlier, creative team, how about Mike Deodato and Ed Brisson? I bet they're capable of doing some pretty neat stuff. Or if you want a different team, uh, you could have my, my buddy Mike Perkins, who I think does great spy comics when he's had the opportunity. And uh, who else could write Nick Fury, in my opinion? I bet Charles Soule would do an excellent job writing Nick Fury. Uh, let's see. Isaac Goodhart, ladies and gentlemen, a fantastic artist who eventually will be on Word Balloon. He's the guy who pointed me out to and said, you got to get Brian Hill on, man. Brian Hill's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Thanks, Isaac. Just saw him in New York. Always good to see Isaac. He's a good dude. What are your favorite Brian Bendis comics? What's your least favorite? I don't – there's really no least favorite. I, I guess maybe his X-Men run just because I'm not normally an X-Men person. But I was entertained enough by it. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think about least favorites. I, I move on. you know. And certainly a guy – like same with Rucka. There was Rucka did a uh, a Queen and Country annual, and I got to admit it. I wrote this before we really became friends, and I was really disappointed because it was really more about Tara Chase and her mother than it was a cool little action story. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I was really kind of hoping to get an action story from you. And Greg wrote back and said, hey, listen, I'm sorry, you know, this was the vibe I was feeling for this story. You know, we can't get what we want, and it's true. I mean, honestly, you know, there've been like, um, God, I can't even remember the was it Fear itself. The uh, Marvel event that uh, Fraction wrote and everything, it, it didn't work for me. And again, I, I, I say that with no malice 
or hey Matt, you, you disappointed us or anything. You know, shit happens, and, and sometimes they try to write a good story, and not everything goes right. It happens. Uh, you know, Secret War Two wasn't as great as Secret War One. There's a Bendis story. If you wanna, if you wanna hang um, your hat on one of those. But favorites of Brian's, I've loved Powers. Um, you know, again, amazing. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man was fantastic. I was a big Ultimate Team-Up fan. Um, there's a ton. I can't just pick one. I'm loving what he's doing currently on Superman. It's it's excellent. Excellent. Everybody is speaking the way they should. You know, we got the surprise of John Kent coming back, and now he's 17. Seems like a decent kid, as I had hoped, and wouldn't come back as a brat or anything like that. So there you go. Zach Davis. I've never read any Legion of Superhero stories. Is there a good place to start or isn't there one? Well, it depends on your tolerance of the Silver Age, Zach, because that's really where a lot of the building blocks of what the Legion became, that's where you'll find them. And not only did the Legion have great stories and Otto Binder was the writer and Kurt Swan drew a lot of those early uh, Legion of Superhero stories, but also a lot of the concepts – I just love the fact that the Legion was really a fan-driven series. And um, things like every year they would vote on a new Legion president in the comic book. But the editors were smart and said, fans, you tell us who should be the president of the Legion this year. And you would every year get uh, in the mailbag, okay, so now you know Princess Projectra is the new president of the Legion. Here's how the vote tallies went. So many votes for Lightning Lad, so many votes for Pharaoh Lad, so many for Wildfire. You know, it was great that way. And I just kind of loved that hand-in-hand relationship that the Legion had with its fandom. So, again, your mileage may vary. Uh, the stuff from the 80s is fantastic, and I highly recommend it both pre- and post-crisis. Uh, Paul Levitz is is and was one of the great Legion of Superhero writers. Um, I would say the majority of his stuff reads very well. Jim Shooter, as we all know, at 14, was cranking out exceptional Legion stories. He wrote The Death of Feral Lad, which is one of the Legion classics when he was just a kid. Crazy stuff, man. Ed Cato, what are three new or rebooted series that surprised you? Al Ewing's Hulk certainly surprised me in a in a very good way and it immediately became a go-to book for me um what else surprised me certainly um if we're including uh, new stories um Steve Orlando has two books that have my attention both Martian Manhunter and Electric Warriors I find both of those incredibly fascinating Travel Foreman by the way of um Electric Warriors sent a very nice email to me and uh, I can't thank him enough for the support. So hoping to talk to travel when I get out of the joint here and uh, get back to the real world. Ed Cato also writes, do you feel free comic book day is a positive or negative thing for the industry? I think it's a positive thing. I see it uh, every year going into the store that day, uh, a line leading outside the door into the street at a lot of stores. And um, the quality of product that the publishers put out for Free Comic Book Day, I think is always impressive. Not just the obvious that DC and Marvel do, but a lot of the second and third level uh, publishers, um, they really put out all the stops. Taking a water break. Um, and, and put out really uh, great product 
for you to sample. And I'm always – that's the stuff that blows me away on Free Comic Book Day is a lot of stuff you get from the smaller publishers and what they're focusing on. So, no, I honestly think it's a good thing. All right, a couple questions from my buddy Mitch Halleck who runs Terrificon at uh, Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, usually in the August uh, days. And it's an amazing show. Had my first one last year. Absolutely had a great time. I know some uh, key uh, creators are going to be there this year, both old-timers and uh, new people as well. And it's a great mix of classic creators and current creators, both writers and artists. Pretty neat stuff. All right, so let's see. Mitch Alec, most valuable comic you've ever owned or used to have? Um, well, I, I don't know where they are in the Overstreet Guide, but I had uh, all the Miracle Man comics at one point. Don't have them anymore. Have the first um, graphic novels of Miracle Man that they put out. Don't have them anymore. Um, I, you know, again, my, sh- uh, my share of Bronze Age comics and Silver Age comics. Uh, some 80-page giants here and there. A couple of imaginary stories back in the 12th set era. Um, most underrated comic book story, writer, and artist. Underrated. I'm thinking. Well, what didn't sell well? Oh, I'll tell you. Um, Terry Dodson and Matt Fraction, when they were doing The Defenders, I thought was a very great series that uh, didn't make it. I also thought when Ed Brubaker and people like Mike Deodato were doing Secret Avengers, that was a real favorite book of mine that didn't make it, and I was bummed. So there's a couple. If I could cosplay as a character, what would it be? Well, I'm not a cosplayer by nature. I have occasionally shown up in costume. My go-to one in terms of – and here's a tip for you. You want a great, inexpensive, but effective cosplay costume. Get yourself a black turtleneck. Get some black khakis. uh, Go to the hardware store, and when they've got um, the letters and the numbers that you put on a mailbox or a street address on your your, uh, vinyl aluminum siding or whatever the hell on your your house – uh, spell out the word goon. Get yourself a domino mask, typical kind of Halloween or Lone Ranger style mask, and a plastic derby. And boom, you are a 66 Batman penguin henchman. Pretty simple, but very effective and dirt cheap to uh, put together. And I'm very proud of that. You don't have to. You could be a fat henchman. You could be an in-shape henchman. It doesn't matter. If I were more in shape, and especially given that I've gotten grayer at the temples, I would probably be uh, a Nick Fury in the classic shield battle suit. Uh, that would be my likely go-to. If I And hopefully when I'm losing weight, given my current health condition, maybe I'll slim down enough and I'll, I'll make it before 60 where I'll look like Nick Fury properly. But I've got those Reed Richard uh, Nick Fury temples, great temples right now. Mitch also asks, uh, as far as MASH goes, who was better, Colonel Potter or Colonel Blake? Who was funnier? Well, it's interesting because actually I got a good personal McLean Stevenson story, Colonel Blake. Harry Potter was great. Uh, I thought, uh, or Harry Potter, <laughs> uh, Harry Morgan, who played uh, Colonel Potter, Sherm, Sherman Potter, as I remember. Yes, hello, Radar. What's all the hoo-ha? It's my uh, Harry Morgan for you. Uh, Klinger, don't wear a dress to dinner anymore. Um, 
different vibes. Like I was saying earlier about like uh, when Coach died on Cheers and they brought Woody in. Well, McLean Stevenson wanted off MASH because it was becoming more of a comedy drama than a straight-up comedy. And he just felt out of place. And he's like, you know, it's not the environment that I want to work in. I don't think I can uh, contribute as well as, you know, in the, in the dramatic moments. Although there are some great moments in, those, in that first season or two. I don't know how many seasons it was before Mike Farrell took over. I think two seasons. Um, where Colonel Blake is asked to, you know, give some straight dramatic moments. And I think he did it well. But he was funny as hell, uh, the character of Henry Blake. And I love the fact that much like the real McLean Stevenson, um, he really talked up his uh, central Illinois background. Um, he grew up, I believe, in Bloomington, Illinois. Uh, he had all that University of Illinois paraphernalia around his office. But he would drop in little things like, boy, I bet that's going to make the front page of the Bloomington Pan- Panagraph. And the Bloomington Panagraph is the local newspaper for the city of Bloomington, Illinois. Uh, so that stuff like that used to crack me up. But in the 90s, at the score, the sports talk station that we worked at, we had McLean Stevenson on. And the reason why we had him on was we discovered that in the 60s, before his comedy career really took off, he worked in the athletic department at Northwestern University where they had successful basketball and football programs. And he had all these amazing stories about working in the office for these coaches. And and we had him on, and he was hilarious. And it was just, you know, really funny college stories and perfect for a sports radio station. We're pounding the floor laughing. And he's like, guys, this was a lot of fun. And I think we talked to him in the fall about football. And we're like, well, McLean, you're just going to have to come back in six months and talk basketball with us. I certainly will. Guys, it was a blast. You brought back great memories. Thank you so much. And before we could have him back, he passed away. And it really broke our hearts because, you know, sometimes you connect with a celebrity. And he really does become a friend. Uh, Charlie Steiner from ESPN back in the day. Uh, always funny as hell whenever we had him on. Dan Patrick became a good friend of the score. Then uh, ESPN kind of, you know, got a little paranoid and they started their own sports network as far as radio goes. And they wouldn't allow their TV people to be on non-ESPN stations for a while. I don't know if that still applies or not. But, uh, you know, guys like that were great. William Peterson from CSI, the original CSI, and so many wonderful movies of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. He became a really great go-to friend. Great stories. Always funny as hell whenever he dropped by and hang out out with us. Gene Siskel, the film critic, became a good friend of uh, the score. So we thought, okay, you know, here comes another one with McLean Stevenson. And unfortunately, he passed away. So, uh, yeah, I got a soft spot for both of those guys. But, yeah, I mean, Harry Morgan, always an accomplished comedian, um, both in film and on Dragnet. He was the comic relief to Jack Webb. You know, Joe, my wife made a chicken pot pie today. Stuff like that. You know, you know great dry sense of humor. I, you know, I loved him on MASH. He got, he got drunk one night with the guys, and he said, my friends used to call me stud. <laughs> and they start laughing. Good stuff, man. So it's tough to say who was funnier. I suppose McLean because he was a pre- professional comic. But again, I, I just think uh, Harry Morgan was such a consummate actor and capable of great comedy himself. 
Zach Goyett, something I've always wondered about. When you reach out for a creator interview, particularly with DC creators, how are they able to block you from talking to certain figures? I remember DC editors were not available to speak with at one point. Well, that policy, as far as editors goes, as far as I know, is continuing. And um, it depended on uh, who was running the PR department at, at DC. I can honestly tell you that Michael Schelling, the current guy, sweetheart of a guy, uh, spent quality time with him last year at both uh, C2E2 and New York. Very reasonable guy. Um, I think things are softening up. It seemed to me, when I first uh, started talking to DC, um, first of all, I always went to creators first. Then I met a couple guys that were in PR. And, you know, again, corporations and justifying your job. They'd puff out their chest and go, you know, you're really supposed to uh, clear this with us before you uh, have somebody on. And I'm like, oh, okay. And kind of would ignore those rules and still, if I, especially if I had a solid relationship with a creator, I'd be like, well, you know, I don't need to talk to you. I know the person. There have been other uh, PR people representing comic companies who have been like, hey, if you want to talk to so-and-so, you know, let us know. And I'm like, oh, I'd love to talk to your great white whale, Creator X. Oh, I can't get that person for you. And I'm like, well, but I can get the guy who's writing Green Hornet for Dynamite on my own. No offense, Dynamite. But, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, yeah, yeah I, I know how to reach him too. I mean, I, I see what their social media handles are and if they had message boards on their website. So, yeah, I'm like, no, I need your help with the big fish. Um, most people are happy to talk because they want the publicity. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But yet for a while, especially uh, in the initial move to Burbank, I think they had Burbank people at D.C. in the PR department uh, that, you know, wanted a PR job. And maybe they – and again, this is my own supposition. But maybe they wanted to work in the film division or the television division. And they created the they, – they treated rather the comic book people as like – the actors of television or film or the writers and producers and they put up that same kind of PR wall of well he's very busy he can only talk during these hours or she can't talk at all whatever and I mean I, I even would get flat out nose at conventions I remember being in a press room at um, one of the Chicago conventions and going oh I see Creator X is going to be there I would love to talk to her this weekend. Oh, no, no, no. She's all booked up. And then literally within a half hour, I'm still in the D.C. press room. Creator X walks in. Hey, John, we'll talk this weekend. Um, hey, by the way, PR person, we can fit John in on Sunday, right? Oh, absolutely. Of course. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That person no longer works at D.C., that PR person. I don't, and in fact, that creator no longer works at D.C. So I'm not going to tell any more detailed stories out of school. But, uh, yeah, there's some, I won't deny that some of these people still are doing uh, some work as far as – sorry, we'll get the beeping taken care of in a second. But they do uh, other PR work for other comic book people. I try to avoid them as much as I can. Okay. As promised, beeping is done. Moving on. What do we got here? Blaine Dowler. Of all the copycat characters, Namor preceded Aquaman, Cap- Catwoman preceded Black Cat, etc. Which is your favorite of the second characters to appear? In other words, which copycat most improved on the original? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, hmm. 
I got to think about this. Well, I would say Rorschach certainly improved on the question and became a very different character. I would say that about a lot of the Watchmen characters. That's a good example. You could also say that uh, Doug Munch and uh, Denny O'Neill and Bill Sienkiewicz took a lot of Batman ideas and I think went in interesting directions with Moon Knight. There's another good example. But I would say Rorschach. And, and I love the question. Love the question. Can't tell you how much I love the question. Uh, but uh, I do think Rorschach became a very interesting character. So I think that's probably the best example. Darren Brun or Brune. What is your go-to comfort genre in the following prose novels? In the following. Prose novels, TV, motion pictures, comics. Hope you continue to recover. You're missed by all your listeners. Thank you, Darren. I'm trying not to be missed by doing these Q&As. And uh, don't worry. Everything, honestly, I keep saying it, but I mean it. Um, this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recover fully from this. It's just going to take a while. Uh, my go-to comfort genres uh, in all of those are uh, Cold War spy stories. I think the whole post-World War II period up to the 90s is just a very fascinating time when it comes to global history. And, uh, and certainly we're, we're in a current new interesting uh, time for espionage and things like that. But yeah, the Cold, the Cold War, the Berlin, from the Berlin airlifts to the various spy things, uh, I think are all really interesting. The way the world was carved up post-World War II, I think the disillusionment of a lot of uh, heroes and just average people who – probably looked at the Cold War period and said, good Lord, you know, I thought we went to war for this so that things would get better, not just get more secret and more underhanded. Um, I do. I just, I, I mean, I was inundated by uh, Cold War stories because I lived during a good portion of it from 64 till the collapse of the Berlin Wall. I suppose that's the period you could look at as the Cold War. Um, yeah. So any of that stuff, uh, any spy stuff like that, I think is fascinating. And I'm a huge fan of. Uh, Lin- Lindsay Falls, glad to hear you're on the road to recovery, sir. What are your feelings on uh, characters like DC's Ambush Bug and other comedic characters of his ilk? Um, they're okay. I think doing flat-out comedy in comics can be really hard. And that's why I admire uh, the Gail Simones and the Chuck Dixons and others who can do it so well, whether they're in Simpsons comics or... Gus Beezer in the case of Gale or any of that stuff. I got to be honest, Ambush Bug, yeah, it was all right. Uh, Deadpool, I got to be honest, and as much as a broad comedy as Deadpool's been over the years, um, I love the movies, but I got to be honest, I, I, I don't read the comics. They're just not my thing. So I'm really not very big on uh, when, they would, when they do uh, superhero parodies. I did love and continue to love the DC Hanna-Barbera mashups that they've been doing. I thought Sam Humphreys, Humphreys did an amazing job going back to the Legion with uh, Bugs Bunny and the Legion of Superheroes. I thought that was really funny. I loved what Brian Hill did with um, Hong Kong Fui and Black Lightning and uh, the Kung Fu 70s story that he, gave, he carved for them. I thought that was terrific. I loved what Gail did with uh, Catwoman and Sylvester and Tweety. Um, Mark Russell, very, very funny guy. Uh, Howard Chaikin, Rough and Ready, very, very funny stuff. So it's not that I'm against uh, certain uh, comedies that DC or Marvel have made. Not Brandeck, very funny stuff back in the day. Plop from DC in the 70s, funny stuff from back in the day. 
Matt Putnam asks, what do we have to do to get a John Suntress, Mike Norton Wildcat comic? Man, I would make that comic in a heartbeat. I know the story. I've said it before. Um, I think Norton would be a fantastic artist to draw it. But, you know, Mike's busy doing his own stuff, so it'd have to be DC throwing us a lot of money. So send your cards and letters to DC, and maybe we can get that uh, going on. Um, Mario Tiambang uh, asks, uh, where can we send Get Well cards? Hey, honestly, Mario, I really appreciate that. And everybody, thank you. Uh, well, uh, you know, save save the 12 cents on the stamp or however much. I mean, stamps, what are they now? 49 cents? I, I have no idea. I can't remember the last time I sent something in the mail. I pay my bills online. I do everything online. But uh, truly, uh, you know, a word on uh, Facebook and, and, and Twitter means just as much as uh, get, getting a Get Well card. So thank you. That's really very kind, but completely unnecessary. So I thank you. He also asked, biggest celebrity deaths of 2018. Franco, feel free to chime in on this one. Uh, we will save that. I don't know how we're going to do it because, again, I'll, I'll see how long it takes before we do our next oh, yeah, podcast. But uh, I'd like to save that for me and Franco talking because uh, that's when we're surprised. We read the death list of the previous year and we forget about people. And it's like, oh, look, there's so-and-so. And I don't know. It just it always becomes an interesting conversation. I enjoy doing it. Franco likes doing it, but I also know he feels really creepy about it because he doesn't want us to sound like we're disrespectful to the people who died. I don't think we are. And, and again, I think it's interesting. My buddy Haas Pichel asks, can you recommend any good boxy movies slash documentary or TV? Well, there's hundreds of them on YouTube. Uh, the actual fights themselves, documentaries as well that uh, the BBC has produced or CBC, Canadian television, or other foreign countries. There's there's a ton. Uh, when We Were Kings was a great movie that was made about uh, the Ali Foreman fight at Zaire, the Rumble in the Jungle, where Ali regained his title. That's an incredible motion picture. That was a great documentary. Um, a lot of the HBO produced stuff, Sugar Ray Robinson, Pound for Pound, great documentary. Two great documentaries about Joe Lewis, uh, you could find HBO uh, documentaries about uh, the first Ali Frazier fight at Madison Square Garden and also the Thrill in Manila, their third fight. Second fight, not that good. I mean, it's covered in both documentaries, but honestly, uh, the second fight was kind of uh, eh. Um, but yeah, those are amazing. Um, I saw an amazing one about Sergio Martinez, the Argentine middleweight champion. And uh, that was great because it really went behind the scenes and they even took you to a WBC uh, convention where promoters kind of uh, speak to power and say, hey, you know, my fighter should be ranked higher and stuff. And that's kind of where um, the first ranks of a certain year come out. And uh, that's where promoters can really make a difference in a public forum and, and plead the cases for their fighters. But that was a fantastic documentary. Uh, the Sad Story of Johnny Tapia, another HBO one. The 30 for 30s that HBO makes, or rather that ESPN makes. No Moss about Leonard and, uh, and Roberto Duran. Amazing documentary. Um, one called, I want to say, The Last Hurrah, where it's all about um, Larry Holmes and Muhammad Ali. Um, the, the Tyson Buster Douglas one that they just did, 42 to 1 meaning the odds that were on Buster Douglas to win that fight. It was okay, but I really felt it was too Buster-centric. And I respect Jeremy Schaap, but I really felt he didn't tell 
the full story of what Mike Tyson was going through and also the lack of a fight strategy they had during the fight itself. It was all about Buster. And to me, that's like covering a Super Bowl match and not really getting into why the other team lost. And they kind of do it. But there's, there was just a lot more detail that they left off. Chasing Tyson, another good 30 for 30 about Evander Holyfield's eventual chase and catching Mike Tyson and getting him in the ring. So there you go, man. There's some. Ben Hayes, do you think DC's new 52 reboot accomplished what it was trying to do, both in getting new readers and in possibly uh, streamlining continuity? Um, I don't know because, you know, DC, you know, you got the numbers every month of how well they were doing. I don't know from a year-to-year standpoint how many of those people stuck around. Um, Obviously, the new 52 lost its shine a lot faster than, let's say, the Ultimate line did for the Marvel Universe. So um, that might speak to its lack of success. I think there were some good ideas in there. I think there were a lot of ideas I didn't agree with. I didn't care for the new 52 characterization of Superman. Um, I didn't like the idea that they eliminated the Justice Society. I think we're seeing a lot of fixes to what didn't work in the New 52 in Doomsday Clock. And Jeff Johns had the brilliant idea of saying the reason why things changed was Dr. Manhattan changed things. That's really interesting. That's a very interesting story and gives gives us all an opportunity to usher these these characters back in. So uh, we'll see. But... um, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it was a good blip of attention. And again, there were some books that flew under the radar. I thought my buddy Heath Corson did an excellent book of Bizarro and Jimmy Olsen together on a road trip, teamed up. I thought that was really funny and a new 52 project. Um, didn't care for the new characterization of Connell, Superboy. Didn't care for the characterization of uh, Supergirl. All of a sudden, uh, Superman's uh, family, they don't like him. I just thought that was weird, really weird. And again, I thought they de-aged Superman too much, and I think it kind of lost its appeal. Ben Hayes, again, uh, what are your thoughts on writer Grant Morrison? I love Grant. I think Grant's a really smart guy. I think he has really interesting ideas. Multiplicity speaks for itself. Um, His amazing book, which the name of it escapes me, where it's kind of his view on the history of comics – is a very singular point of view, but I kind of love it, and I and I do think it's fascinating. I don't think he's right on everything. Um, I think he imposes his own, frankly, fetishes and other interests in some of the ideas. And so, oh, it had to have been this way. I'm like, oh, not necessarily. But, man, I'll tell you, the couple encounters I had with, uh, face-to-face basis with Grant, always incredibly nice, incredibly gracious, um, we did that one video interview uh, at the time of um, Batman R.I.P. and All-Star Superman. And he was so funny and so great. And we, you know, we got about like six or seven minutes on camera. But then off camera, we talked for like another half hour or so. Could not have been nicer. Tremendous guy. I haven't seen him much since. And uh, that's a shame because I really do like him. And it also kind of bums me out that he and Mark Miller aren't friends anymore because I love them both. And, um, you know, not just because they're both Scottish guys and everything, but, you know, they're just they're, they're very very similar in an offbeat sense of humor and the way they look at things. And I, I just really, really appreciate that. Um, man, I miss Mark. I was so glad to see him at C2E2, and I'm so bummed 
that uh, my schedule didn't allow it, us to have a sit-down word balloon interview. But uh, damn it, I, I do. I love that guy, and we had a great time. But you know, the more I think about Grant Morrison, I mean, he's the guy who uh, came up with the idea of uh, for the Atom that Ivy Town, because it's a college town, and uh, all of the Atom strange um, experiments, but also others, that um, that was uh, the place where weird things were happening uh, in this college town. And I thought that was a great idea for a good backdrop and making Ivy different from uh, what, we, uh, what we've seen in other uh, superhero cities. So, no, Grant's a very inventive writer. I'm a big fan. Uh, let's see here. Mario Tiembeng is back with best in, best in episode singing by a cast member in Star Trek. No guest stars. Name has to be in the opening credits. Uh, well, that kind of doesn't that kind of eliminate everybody except Robert Picardo? The doctor from Voyager. Um, I, I'm sorry, Mario. I'm not going to stick to your rules, and I'm going to say that my favorite uh, singer, of a, as far as the cast members of Star Trek, is Lieutenant Uhura, Nichelle Nichols. She was a jazz singer. She's an incredible singer. He has a beautiful voice. Has great albums, and I thought did a great job on the original series. Anytime she would sing, she was lovely and a beautiful singing voice. Um, and also, again, a special uh, shout out to uh, James Darren, Vic Fontaine, um, who would be during the uh, not the opening credits, but certainly was always listed in every episode that he was in. Special appearance by James Darren as Vic Fontaine. James Darren, man, I'm telling you, I was a little kid, so they were in reruns, Gidget and the Time Tunnel, and uh, I missed the the apex of his. Uh, boy singer Frankie Avalon sort of career of the late 50s and early 60s. But man, as he got older, singing the great American songbook and singing the great Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra songs and stuff, I love hearing Jimmy Darren doing the uh, standards, the classics. Um, he's great. So I'm a, I'm a big Vic Fontaine fan. I like the idea of the character. And I think uh, James Darren was a surprise because I was. <laughs> I wasn't a big T.J. Hooker fan when he was on that show with Shatner. But at the end of the day, I think Jimmy Darren got the last laugh and is enjoying his career continuing as a singer. He keeps putting out CDs and also dipping into the sci-fi world and showing up at the occasional Star Trek conventions. And plus, you always get like an evening with Vic Fontaine, which is awesome. Oh, my God. You know, I used to go to uh, the Vegas Hilton where they had the Star Trek experience. And uh, would go and after I did the tour and I would do the ride and go look at all the uh, different uh, pieces of um, props and costumes and stuff. I would go to Cork's Bar. I would order a Warp Core Breach, this amazing rum punch. So, yeah, there was nothing like uh, chilling at Quark's, being a little bombed and watching uh, some playoff football. It's funny, as I'm recording this, uh, the playoff games obviously are going on. Um yeah, I, I loved it. So uh, to actually see uh, Vic Fontaine perform, that would be amazing. I haven't done it yet. I'm sure some of my buddies like Jason Inman and uh, Matthew Clark uh, might have experienced that at uh, the Star Trek conventions. Ashley Robinson, another good friend that goes to a lot of Star Trek cons, maybe they've had that experience of being able to see Vic Fontaine live. But I would certainly welcome that anytime. Um 
uh, my buddy Ted Weldon is like, this is how the strong survive. Thanks, Ted. I miss you, man. If you're listening, I hope uh, we get together soon once I uh, am out of uh, rehab and uh, back on my feet. And I will get there. But like I said, it's still a few weeks or a month or so away. Stephen Orion, have you ever asked J. Michael Straczynski to be on the show? Thoughts on his Spider-Man run, his run on Thor. I remember Bendis uh, talking about back when JMS was at Marvel in the retreat a little. But maybe now that that time has passed, JMS might be able to talk about his time there. Well, my thoughts on his Spider-Man run. I loved it. My only exception to that was the uh, – was it called Things Past story where uh, it was revealed that Gwen Stacy and uh, Norman Osborn had an affair and had uh, two children. Uh, that just was like, okay, whatever. I mean, again, it's, I guess, fair ground, but, um, and, you know, Marvel printed it, but it's one of those stories I think everyone's like, ah, let's put that genie back in the bottle. His Thor run was fantastic. His Fantastic Four run was fantastic. No, I'm a big JMS fan, and I'm a huge, diehard Babylon 5 fan, and nothing would entertain me more than get uh, Joe Straczynski to sit down and talk about some of his accomplishments. I mean, he is, he is truly a great, Writer, period. I was going to say sci-fi writer, but no, a great writer, period. He's an excellent writer and deserves all the accolades he gets. That said, unfortunately, when he was at DC after he left Marvel, and you might remember he did a run of Superman and Wonder Woman at the same time, that he was like, this is a very drastic change. While I'm doing the story, I don't want action comics to come out. I don't want Wonder Woman to come out other than the comic I'm doing. They cannot be in the Justice League while I'm writing my story. It's going to take a year, but they're very ambitious ideas for Superman and Wonder Woman. And I'm like, okay, as we all were, okay. And then his Superman story came out. And I got to be honest, if you remember the premise, uh, a woman goes to Superman and says, while you were out saving the galaxy – my husband had inoperable cancer that only your microscopic vision, heat vision, might have you know, eliminated a tumor or whatever, and you weren't here to save him, so you let me down, Superman. And Superman gets very guilt-ridden and decides to walk across America to get back in touch with citizens again. And Straczynski's like, this has never been done before. What a novel idea. What a great story. Well, I'm an old reader. And as much as that's a great idea on the surface, there's a very great Green Lantern, Green Arrow story that essentially does the same thing. There's a very classic Neil Adams sequence of panels where an older black gentleman goes up to Hal Jordan and says, yeah, I heard about you. You went off to uh, one planet and saved the purple skin people. And you went off to another planet and saved the orange skin people. Well, uh, what about the black people on your own planet? What have you done for them lately? And he looks very sheepish and he's like, I don't know. And he's embarrassed. So he and Ollie, Hal and Ollie, get in a p- pickup truck and go across America along with uh, Ganeth, one of the Guardians, to get back in touch with the real America. It was called Hard Traveling Heroes. It's been reprinted several times over the years in slipcase editions, hardback editions, omnibus, paperback you name it, it's been reprinted a million times. Now, you can't read every comic, and maybe Joe Straczynski was never aware of this comic, but his Superman ideas sounded a lot like Hard Traveling Heroes to me and a lot of other people who were well aware of their DC history. So i got to be honest, I, I was kind of saying that on the air. And then when the story was coming out, you might remember that there were going to be landmark issues where 
Superman would be in a certain city and they would build a promotion in that city around that issue. I know there was going to be a big Cleveland parade when Superman made it to Cleveland. Well, he didn't make it to Cleveland because about three or four issues in, Straczynski bailed on, on that and he also bailed on Wonder Woman. And two of my good friends took over the stories. Phil Hester took over Wonder Woman and uh, Chris Robertson took over the Superman story. And because Straczynski is such a big name, they – DC decided to continue the stories through the end because there were enough issues that Straczynski himself wrote that even putting out um, a graphic novel and having Straczynski's name as a co-writer they felt was a bankable op- you know, pr- opportunity. And then, of course, uh, Straczynski also wrote two of the Earth-1 Superman stories that was kind of the like an ultimate universe version of Superman. Jeff Johns did the Batman stories, which I thought the Batman stories were great. I wasn't crazy about the Superman stories. I found them very ordinary. And really, especially when I had uh, Chris Robertson on the show, told him, I'm like, you know, you are doing a great job with a very thankless uh, work order from DC, and that is to make, you know, Silk out of the sow's ear that Straczynski left you as far as a story. And again, I didn't hold back. Really didn't like it. And also was really mad that not only did it screw Superman and Wonder Woman in their own books for a year, but also no Justice League. And that's when like Dwayne McDuffie was writing Justice League stories and got frustrated because he couldn't use any frontline DC heroes. I know uh, one of the alternate stories for Superman, which I thought was a great inventive idea, uh, James Robinson was writing about how Monel uh, was released from the Phantom Zone and he was fronting one of the Superman titles, uh, which I thought was a great idea and very, very and I love Monel. But again, I was kind of mad that Straczynski, you know, again, I felt it was Straczynski's fault. And I made it pretty clear on Word Balloon. Well, I don't know if uh, Straczynski heard the shows or whatever, but uh, when he came back and was doing the Earth One graphic novels with Superman for DC, he was at a C2E2, and I caught him right after a signing he did at the DC booth. And I'm like, hi, Joe, uh, my name's John Suntress. I have a podcast called Word Balloon. I know who you are. Oh, well, great. Um, I don't know if you'd be interested, but I'm a huge Babylon 5 fan. I loved your work at Marvel. I would love to have you on on a sit-down to talk about your work. And he said, I'll never do your show. And he walked away. (laughs) And again, I'm assuming because I know how his message board worked, and I'm sure if he didn't hear it, I'm sure some comic fans might have heard it and said, hey, Joe. I don't know if you've heard this of this podcast guy, but uh, here's a link to what he said about you. That's okay. That's fair game. Hey, you put out opinions. You got to live by those opinions. And it's bitten me in sports and it bit me in comics. And that's the classic example. So, again, going back to my initial point, Joe Straczynski, brilliant creator. Absolutely great. Does not need me saying this. His work speaks for itself. Babylon 5 is a seminal show and uh, an amazing uh, I love Babylon 5, and I, could, I would have loved to have talked to him about that. But, again, I understand. And also, I didn't, I didn't care for the way Straczynski kind of shit on um, the Brand New Day stories that Spider-Man did. And in particular, he got into a weird shouting match with uh, Dan Slott that I remember. And I felt that was unnecessary. And Mark Wade is the guy who stepped in and really shut Straczynski down. 
on that front. But um, yeah, I just you know again, I, I think Straczynski was bitter. He didn't like the way uh, uh, One More Day uh, ended for Spider Man, and that they erased. Uh, Peter and Mary Jane's marriage out of continuity. I know he was against that. That's one of the reasons why he left Marvel. So, um, you know, it's okay. We all have our opinions and entitled to them. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's why you'll probably never hear J. Michael Straczynski on a word balloon anytime soon. All right, my buddy from Canada, Wayne Mousseau. Are there any classic comedy teams or routines that you fondly remember and still laugh at out loud? Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, I mean, God, Abbott and Costello at their best, doing some of their burlesque vaudeville routines. Of course, who's on first? But other ones, too, and I can't even remember the names of them, but, like, where they do a math problem and, like, 43 times whatever is a ridiculous number and it's nowhere near what it actually is. Like, you know, for anyway. So I have to tell many Marx Brothers routines, many Laurel and Hardy routines. Uh, I mean, Marx Brothers, good Lord, the, the interplay between... Groucho and Chico is just fantastic. Love it. Absolutely love it. Duck Soup, one of my all-time favorite movies. Horse Feathers, one of my all-time favorite movies. I've been enjoying Laurel and Hardy on Turner Classic Movies. They've been playing a lot of their old movies in anticipation of this uh, Stan and Ollie movie that John C. Riley and uh, Jack uh, – or John C. Riley and Steve Coogan uh, did that's coming out uh, God, in, by next weekend as uh, we're recording this podcast. So, uh, no, I mean, I'm a huge fan of classic comedy. Dean and Jerry, a lot of great Martin and Lewis moments. Um, Artists and Models is the lost Martin and Lewis movie that you have to see because a lot of it has to do with their aspiring comic book creators in the 50s and dealing with the parental censorship and the thoughts that comics lead to juvenile delinquency. Uh, that's one of the main kind of threads of that story. And, uh, oh, my God, Dorothy Malone at her most beautiful. Shirley MacLaine at her most beautiful are in the movie as well. Frank Tashlin, the comedic director, uh, directed it. Very, very funny stuff. And, yeah, I, I'm a huge – I'm more of a Martin and Lewis fan than I am a Jerry Solo fan as far as Jerry Lewis goes. So, yeah, Wayne, no, there's a ton there. What are my thoughts on the changes in the writing styles of comics from a complete story in one or two issues to writing for the trade? Um, well, I'm happy that there are people like Dan Slott that still do one and dones and uh, other writers as well to show that they can still do it. Um, you know, one of my absolute all-time favorite Batman stories was a Christmas detective comic story that uh, Paul Dini wrote and Don Kramer drew. And it's all about um, Tim Drake getting kidnapped by the Joker they're driving around. I can't remember if it was the Batmobile or a 4x4, but Tim Drake is tied up in Christmas lights and uh, Christmas ribbons and all and the like, and it's him and the Joker just driving around. And it's it's a fantastic story, and it's all self-contained. Um, you know, But I do like a good five-part or six-part story. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so, again, it, it, all, it always just depends on the story. And the strength of the writer and artist to bring it home. It's that simple. So at first decompression, I think, frustrated me, especially when it first came out. But I think a lot of writers were kind of getting used to the form. And I, and I think by now, 20 years into it, the experiment, I, I think uh, they're, they're all – they know what they're doing. So what I don't like is certain publishers stretch out a story over 12 issues and it's like 
uh, this this could have been wrapped up in seven. And I feel like that about a lot of event comics as well. So uh, that's my only little caveat as far as uh, the changes of the writing style. Josh Dahl, a good aspiring writer that I see at conventions all the time. Hey, Josh. What do you tell first-time guests off-air to get them to loosen up and talk to you? Um, I it, There's no real pattern. I like to talk to them for a couple minutes to kind of loosen them up and just explain. It's easy, you know, casual conversation. Most will fall into a relaxed patter after a while because I have them on the phone for as long as we do. But uh, – you know, and also by the same token, sometimes they start talking about what I want to talk about on the show. And I always tease them and say, all right, you know, and putting it in sports terms, let's not leave it in the locker room. We want it on the field. So, you know, a lot like Johnny Carson. Again, no, forgive me for if you though he's comparing himself to Johnny Carson now. No, I'm not. But uh, a lot of hosts wouldn't want to talk to a guest until they were on camera because they didn't want to lose that spontaneity of the conversation. Um, I'm not that far. But, yeah, I just, I, you know, basically, hey, you know, I, I also want to get into what you like. And uh, through the conversation, I'll, I'll learn a little bit more about you. So if you don't mind, you know, if we talk about an hour, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, no problem. Okay. And then we, we're off to the races. What do you wish first-time guests all knew before they went on? And what do you wish they would avoid? What do I wish they all knew before they went on? Well, again, I just try to reassure them that, hey, I'm, you know, we're just having a talk. It's no big deal. Uh, don't worry if you say something out of school. Uh, you don't have to worry that we're on the record and, you know, you just said, oh, and I killed my sister. It's like, no, you, you, it's okay. Uh, can we cut out the part about me killing my sister? Of course we can. Don't worry about it. Uh, it sounded like uh, John Lovitz for a second, didn't I? I just discovered penicillin. Um, so, yeah, I'm always like, hey, man. It's as I always say, it's fucking comic books. You're not curing cancer out there. You're not keeping government secrets from anybody. You might be keeping publisher secrets, which, by the way, totally fair. I, you know, I'm not Clark Kent. I'm not Jack uh, Jack Ryder, the Creeper. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a gotcha uh, reporter. And if you if they make a mistake and oh, you know, I really shouldn't have talked about that. You know, Marvel's planning this whole big promotional push. Fine, then I'll edit it out. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I am not here to fuck up your career, is what I always try to tell people. So I suppose that's what I want them to all know before they go on. That a talk with me is not meant to fuck up your career. What do I wish they would avoid, Josh? Um, What do I wish they would avoid? Well, some people think that you know all you have to do is sell the book that they're talking about, and that's it. Um, but that's that's a rare exception these days. Most of them like to talk because they like the opportunity to uh, promote themselves. You know, um, I, what I hope to do with Word Balloon is a lot more than what you get not only in a diamond paragraph blurb about a comic, but even and in fact, I talked about this on the sh- on uh, online on Twitter in the last couple days. A creator was saying, you know, I don't like getting questionnaire uh, Q&As from a, from a blogger that's supposed to be an air quotes interview. And I said, well, I tell my friends that are creators to completely avoid that and almost demand that they speak to the writer directly. And I don't mean to create extra work for the writers and I can appreciate writers that like doing the questionnaire. I also know that there are creators that prefer to do the, the questionnaire because it gives them time to think about 
and give uh, more nuanced answers and stuff. But uh, my whole thing is, well, you know, the reporter has a responsibility to conduct the interview and get the information from the person. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm old school. Record your conversation and transcribe it or take, take good notes while the person's talking. Whatever works is fine. And I know that they will the, – the good ones will fashion a dialogue – from these questions and answers, whether they get them back in written form or they do the phone call, and it's the same standard questions that some creators might complain about: Who are your favorite writers? Who are your favorite artists? You know, what's your what are your five favorite books? What writers most inspire you? What artists most inspire you? The like. Um, yeah, I, I I just think that that's uh, I think the least you can do as a reporter is uh, you know do your share of the writing. And not ask a creator to do their 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 right your writing for them or what you know what I'm saying. So there you go. Uh, Brandon Stevenson with the recent news of the retirement of George Perez from comics. What are some of your favorite Perez book runs? Do you have any experiences personally over the years of cons with Perez you'd like to share? As I did earlier, Brandon, um, I mentioned uh, my interview with him at uh, a Wizard Chicago show a couple of years ago. Man, almost 10 years ago now that I think about it. I love JLA versus Avengers. I love the event books that Perez has done over the years. Um, yeah, you know. So there you go. Great guy, great creator. Um, Mario asks, uh, what are your most downloaded oh, yeah, podcast episodes? Mario, I'm going to save that for an oh, yeah, podcast answer um, because I don't have it handy. And, um, well, hold on one second. I'll get it. Okay, sorry, man. I, I took a look, and I uh, again, I'm working on my tablets, so I'm not able to get a really uh, good count. Um, I, I can't access the information, and I'm not going to waste any more time trying to do that. So uh, that's going to have to wait, and uh, then that, that question will be answered at a future date on uh, on Aya podcast, if you will. All right, back to Facebook, and more questions. Uh Omar Spahi of the uh, Dreamer Comic Dreamers uh, podcast. What's my favorite moment on the show? My favorite moment on the show. Well, there are several. Uh, when I got to speak with Jerry Conway the first time and was able to talk to him about him writing The Death of Gwen Stacy, and I told him how much he blew my nine-year-old mind reading that story in reprints, uh, that was really amazing. Um Talking to some of the celebrities that I've been able to talk to, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, comedians like Dana Gould, and um, Tony Hendra, who you may not know, but was Spinal Tap's uh, manager. Uh, so great opportunities like that. Kelly Carlin, George Carlin's daughter, that was an incredible conversation. So uh, I have too many favorite moments to really just uh, pick on one. And then, of course, the, the developing friendship that I've had with Brian Bendis, Greg Rucka, and so many other creators here on the podcast. And then finally, Michael Camp Campobasso asks, what do I think of the news of uh, Star Trek Discovery's spinoff show? Well, as uh, we know, there's several spinoff shows, but I'm assuming the most recent news that um, Michelle Yeoh, who played Captain Giorgio on the first season of Discovery and will continue in season two, that they're going to do a spinoff show about her day's as a captain preceding Discovery. Um, I think it's a good idea. 
uh, because I think there's a lot of her career that is worth exploring. Um, she is listed in Discovery as one of uh, Starfleet's greatest captains up until that point. But as far as actually knowing about her missions, we don't really have any evidence of that other than what she did in her failures in Star Trek Discovery that wound up getting her, herself killed and the like, um, which, again, you know, that's all plot. So there's plenty of room. God, uh, Captain Harriman from Star Trek Generations, the guy who screwed up and Kirk had to save his ass and Kirk winds up in the Nexus and essentially he's known as the man who killed Kirk. Uh, there have been a ton of great novels and fan films that have kind of redeemed John Harriman's mistake and made him a very a very credible captain. So, uh, you know, hey, they're unwritten stories. There's, As Mr. Spock would say, there's always possibilities. So speaking of which, I watched the first episode of Discovery and I liked it. Liked it enough. It was okay. Um, I got to be honest. Uh, I, I still think there are flaws to Discovery that I just kind of shrug and go, okay, that's the way you want to write it. So be it. And I just think there's a lot of deliberate writing to specifically cater to um, women and uh, people of color uh, to make sure that they are the ones that have the solutions uh, to the problems. It, it just seems like all the white guys are there to kind of uh, be dumb or make the instinctual wrong assumptions and are corrected by the women, saved by the women, and uh, and the like. And that's that's fine. That's cool. I just never noticed it be so heavy-handed when Catherine Janeway would make the right the right decision or Ben Sisko would make the right decision. Um, it just feels a little too deliberate in the hands of these discovery writers. And I say that with no anger and no malice. I am a huge Christopher Pike fan and I'm thrilled that we're getting new Christopher Pike stories to fill in more of his character beyond what we've gotten in uh, comic books and in uh, novels and uh, movies and uh, other 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 in other stories beyond the cage and the menagerie. Um, I'm intrigued by the idea of young Spock. It's too early to make a judgment call on that, but I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with young Spock and how he interacts with Michael Burnham. There is still a part of me that I feel like you got to prove to me that it's important that Burnham be not only raised by Vulcans, but specifically be Spock's sister, a character we knew nothing about and had never heard of in 50 plus years of Star Trek. And all of a sudden, oh, here's a little continuity implant. There's an adopted sister and she's human. OK, uh, I'm still waiting. And again, this is one of the promises that uh, they they wanted to do as far as explaining in the second season what they couldn't do in the first season. But we'll see. I'm, I'm watching. I'm glad there's new Star Trek out there from an action standpoint, from a visual standpoint. It's still incredibly impressive. But, um, yeah, there's these little niggly things, uh, like I just said, that still bother me about Discovery. And it'll be interesting to see how they handle them in subsequent episodes. I'm shrugging. And we'll see what happens with this Michelle Yeoh series. Why not? Uh, very excited about the Picard series. The more I hear about it, it sounds great. Um, the animated series by the guy who uh, is a Rick and Morty writer sounds terrific. Um, by the way, meanwhile, the Orville keeps chugging along. Um, four episodes in, 
I think they had their best episode ever this past week where uh, Seth MacFarlane and uh, a human that was actually one of their enemies in disguise, one of the alien races. I thought that was a really solid adventure. Uh, it, it hit all the notes that you want uh, a, a sci-fi adventure show to hit. And uh, I thought it was decent characterization. So I got to say, I think the Orville is still winning in a lot of ways that Star Trek Discovery isn't. In fact, some have even compared the story of this week's Orville to uh, Lieutenant Ash Tyler and him formerly being uh, a Klingon, uh, a, re- a re-engineered Klingon on Discovery and said maybe this was the Orville's answer to that story because there's definitely similarities there. Uh, maybe. Maybe not, but regardless, yeah, I just think the Orville handled it well and moved on. And and also back to Discovery, um, this one story over thirteen hours. I don't know if it's working for me. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I, I kind of think it's like you know, can you bust it up a little bit? The short treks were a lot of fun, and uh, we got four four different stories out of those. And right now we're on this one really big story. Uh, we'll we'll see where it goes. I guess. But yeah, obviously, I still have a lot of thoughts about Discovery. The jury's out, and I'm, I'll be watching still every week, but uh, I still have my issues. So there you go, everybody. I hope you enjoyed uh, today's Q&A. Uh, again, it's going to come out in two parts on uh, the Spreaker feed initially, but uh, as soon as I get my laptop, I will uh, connect uh, all three shows, parts one and two, and make them into uh, three shows on the Blog Talk feed. And But again, eventually the Blog Talk feed will be absorbed into the Spreaker feed. You won't notice the difference. And also, subsequently, um, there will be a Word Balloon Classic feed, which will feature the first 500 or so episodes of Word Balloon that have not transferred over to the Spreaker feed yet. Um, so, uh, But we'll, we'll get all that cleaned up in uh, the weeks ahead and let you know via social media what's going on. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners, helping me out through Patreon, patreon.com slash wordballoon if you want to subscribe. Thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. And our friends at Aftershock Comics, great books, fresh genres. It's 2019. Explore. Experiment. Do yourself a favor. Go to Aftershock Comics. Dot com. Check out the list of books. Check out the descriptions. You'll see preview art pages. I'm telling you, man, uh, buddies of mine from Azzarello to Paul Jenkins, Jim Starlin's art book is there. Marguerite Bennett is there. Garth Ennis doing a lot of work for them. Uh, Tim Seeley, Steve Orlando, Phil Hester, all writing interesting stories. And uh, they're beautifully drawn and definitely unconventional ideas that you're not getting from the major two. And uh, Aftershop has created a great niche for itself and is worthy of your attention. Don't take my word for it. Check it out yourself. Preview pages, full story descriptions, and the diamond codes on how to order these books through your local comic shop at AftershotComics.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2019.